Welcome to episode four of Interviewing the Interview. I'm Eric Rinston Lobel, a journalism student at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. This week, Glenn Geffner joins the podcast. Glenn is the current radio play-by-play broadcaster for the Miami Marlins, a position he's held since 2008. Before going to Miami, Glenn spent time working in the public relations department and in the broadcast booth for the San Diego Padres and in Boston, where he was the radio broadcaster for the Boston Red Sox for two World Series championship runs. During our conversation, we'll cover Glenn's public relations background and how that influences how he prepares for games, how he approaches a season when he knows the team he's broadcasting for is not going to be very good, and I'll also ask him about his thoughts on what baseball will look like in 2020. Before we uh, get into your career um, doing broadcasting and PR stuff, could you talk about first, Glenn, uh, what you did while you were at Northwestern to prepare yourself for a career as a broadcaster? Sure. Well, I studied journalism. I was in Medill, the journalism school. Uh, and when I got to college, I kind of thought, I knew I wanted to be around baseball, and I thought the route I would take would be as a writer. Uh, when I grew up, graduating from high school in 1986, you didn't have the opportunities you have today to get involved in broadcasting in high school. So I worked for the student newspaper at Northwestern, uh, at Palmetto High School in Miami, my high school. And when I got to Northwestern, kind of figured I would go that route and maybe uh, in a perfect world, end up covering Major League Baseball for Sports Illustrated and following in the footsteps at that time of a Peter Gammons or a Tim Kirkchin or a Steve Rush and somebody like that. Uh, but when I got to campus, I saw during New Student Week that there were auditions at the student radio station for the sports department. And I'd always been fascinated by baseball play-by-play. I grew up in my bedroom turning the volume down in the game of the week at NBC and calling games with baseball cards out in front of me to have statistics. And I thought, you know what, let me give this a shot. So I got involved with the student radio station uh, during new student week of freshman year. And uh, the rest is history, devoted four years to WNUR. And while I did a little bit of stuff off and on, kind of as a contributor to the Daily Northwestern, never really worked there full time at all. But I got my journalism degree and did some internships in newspaper. Uh, and I'm happy, even in retrospect, that I did things the way I did them. Because I feel like learning how to write, learning how to be concise has helped me as a broadcaster, although you may not find that to be the case over the next half hour or so as we talk here, because I can talk on and on and on about certain things. But you know, you learn how to do research, you learn how to ask questions, do interviews, you learn how to follow up, you learn how to listen. And uh, I think that's really helped me a lot as a broadcaster. So I wouldn't have done it differently, even had I shown up at Northwestern knowing I wanted to get involved in broadcasting from day one, I still would have gone with the journalism uh, and then the extracurricular work that really uh, set me on the path. Now, one of the things, Glenn, that I think makes you a little bit unique is you've talked in the past about how, you know, you did broadcasting right after graduating from Northwestern, but you also did a lot of PR stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and could you talk a little about how that non-broadcasting experience um, helped you in your broadcasting career? 
And again, that goes back to my journalism background where I was a writer. Uh, I had done a lot of broadcast stuff as well, but my initial opportunities in AAA were as a PR director with the Rochester Red Wings, the Baltimore Orioles AAA club, first doing PR as an intern, then turning it into a full-time job and eventually becoming the number two broadcaster, then the lead broadcaster. But having that writing background, having the newspaper background, but also understanding broadcasting, uh, I think made me a very good PR person at that time. Uh, and in doing PR at the AAA level before I started broadcasting full-time and later at the major league level before I started broadcasting full-time, uh, really gave me the opportunity to get to understand the business side of the sport, to know what goes on in the front office, to understand everybody's role, to know what it's like to sit in in the draft room, to know what it's like to be in the general manager's office in the minutes leading up to the trading deadline, to know what it's like when uh, deals are being made and when uh, you're trying to publicize certain things, you're trying to sell tickets, you're trying to get the word out about promotions. Uh, and all those are things that as a broadcaster, you know, I'm part of the PR machine for the Miami Marlins now. Uh, and I think I have unique understanding of messaging and why things are done the way they're done or said the way they're said. And I think that experience has really helped me a lot to understand from the business side, from the baseball side, what goes on in the front office. And that does certainly help me out a lot on the air, I think, to this day. Or could you just give, for those who don't know, a brief career timeline of, of where you went after graduating from college? Sure. I graduated from Northwestern a quarter early in 1990, and my plan was to graduate early so I could start in baseball somewhere before opening day. And uh, my first opportunity was as an intern with the Rochester Red Wings, who at that time were the AAA affiliate of the Baltimore Orioles. And I never stepped foot in Rochester in my life. All I knew of Rochester Chester was that it was a line on the back of Cal Ripken's baseball card, basically, but had a great experience there and, and turned the internship into a full-time position eventually, doing the PR, then becoming the number two broadcaster, then the lead broadcaster. And I was in Rochester through the end of the 1996 season, at which time I had a chance to go to the San Diego Padres. And initially, when I went to San Diego, it was as a public relations director, but I was able to do a lot of broadcasting. Uh, as time went on, we did some television shows that we produced in-house daily shows from spring training, weekly shows during the season, Padres report type TV shows that talk a lot of baseball, but also talk about what the team was doing in the community. A lot of the off the field things, uh, they were instrumental in helping the Padres win a referendum to get the new ballpark, Petco Park built in San Diego. So little by little, I got back into the broadcasting, filled in on some radio and television broadcasts before finally moving back into the booth full-time late in my time in San Diego. I was with the Padres uh, from 19, November of 1996 until the end of the 2002 season when I had a chance to go to the Boston Red Sox. And a lot of the Padres' leadership had left go to the Red Sox when John Henry and Larry Lucchino bought the Red Sox in 2002. Larry had been the club president with the Padres. I knew Larry well, and initially I had a chance to go to Boston uh, in 02, but we enjoyed San Diego so much that uh, we stayed there and thought we'd be there forever. Leadership changed in San Diego. The whole experience changed in San Diego. And when the Red Sox came back to me a year later, we were ready to move to Boston in 03. And initially, again, I was in PR with the Red Sox and was the vice president of communications there before, again, following kind of a similar path, filling in on some broadcasts, uh, doing daily shows from spring training and weekly shows during the season, and eventually getting on the air full-time in Boston as well before I left there at the end of the 2007 season. So uh, I got to Boston in 03 in time for the misery of the Aaron Boone home run in game seven of the ALCS that year against the Yankees. 
was there in 04 when the Red Sox reversed the curse of the Bambino and won the World Series for the first time in 86 years uh, and was there in 07 when they won their second World Series against the Rockies before having the chance to come home to South Florida where I grew up and do radio for the Marlins. And I've been here ever since the start of the 2008 season. So this year, assuming there is a this year, will be my 13th season here in Miami. Now, preparation is something I know that you take very seriously. And it's one of those things that if you're not a broadcaster, you probably don't ever think about. You probably just think the broadcaster show up, call the game and go home. But there's hours and hours of work that goes into each game you do. Now, if, if things were normal now, uh, the Marlins, I believe, would be hosting the San Francisco Giants tonight. Take me through what that preparation for a game tonight would look like. Well, it really never ends. It really is a year-round kind of thing. Uh, and certainly it's more intense on game days, more intense during the season. But even in the offseason, I, I try to read all the out-of-town papers on a daily basis and stay up to date on everything going on with every team that we might play in the coming year, every team in the National League and certainly the teams in the American League that we're going to see in interleague play. So uh, I read constantly. I've, over the years, having been in the big leagues now for 23 years, I think, developed certainly a lot of contacts around the game players, coaches, managers, front office executives, general managers, scouts. I've got a network of people I'm constantly texting or emailing or talking to on the phone and asking questions and always collecting information. Uh, you never know when you're going to need something or want something or use something. So uh, I collect a ton of information. And then at some point you decide, okay, that little nugget is applicable in this situation right here, right now, tonight. Uh, but on a day-to-day -day basis during the season, I do things a lot differently than most broadcasters. And probably part of this is my own PR background as somebody who's written game notes and who's written media guides and things like that. I know what I'm looking for and I know what I think is interesting. Uh, so I don't use the game notes the teams put out on a daily basis. I don't use the media guides that PR departments put out on an annual basis. I do all of my own preparation statistically, anecdotally, everything on a daily basis. I don't want to have the same information my partner has on the radio broadcast. I don't want to have the same information the television guys in the booth next door have. I want to have my own stuff that I find interesting, and hopefully the listener is going to find interesting as well. So uh, you don't want to know what goes into doing it on a daily basis. But, uh, you know, I wake up first thing in the morning if we're at home and go right into my office and jump on the computer or jump on the phone and start crunching numbers and putting together – whether it's a list of statistical nuggets that are going to make sense for tonight's game or anecdotal things that apply tonight. Uh, I go through both teams player by player, put together batting notes for everybody on both teams on a daily basis. Who's hot, who's not, what kind of streaks have people been on? I do very detailed notes on both starting pitchers on a daily basis. I've got very detailed notes on the team we're playing. You mentioned we we'll playing the giants tonight. Uh, so I've got a pack of five by eight cards that I print out off, my computer of information that maybe I found in December about Buster Posey, some little nugget I got in the off season and staying on top of the Giants. And I put that on my note cards. And uh, then you update that with current stuff. What have the Giants been up to lately? Uh, big picture, small picture, whatever it may be. And I compile this stuff certainly for the Marlins and then for the opposing team on a daily basis. So uh, I've got all my own numbers, all my own anecdotal bits and pieces and uh, things. And the funny thing is I do all this work. I'll usually leave the house about maybe two o'clock for a seven o'clock game, get to the ballpark, go downstairs, spend some time in the clubhouse, talking to people, spend some time on the field during batting practice, talking to people. You put all this information you gather together 
And on a given night, I'll probably only use 5% of it, but you never know what 5% it's going to be. So you still feel like you need to do it all every single day. And I think probably the biggest transformation I've made as a broadcaster as the years have gone on, and there have been a lot of years now, uh, is there was a time when I felt like if I had researched something, if I had a great nugget, one way or another, come hell or high water, I was going to get it onto the broadcast tonight. But as time goes on, you realize, you know what, maybe it just doesn't work tonight. Maybe it just doesn't fit. And we're going to play the Giants again tomorrow night or the night after, or maybe we'll see them in San Francisco next month or next year, whenever it might be. So if I don't get this note about Buster Posey in tonight, there'll be other opportunities. You can't force it in. And that's one of the things that I hear a lot in listening, particularly to young broadcasters. As the game gets late, they start to get nervous. I got this great nugget. I've got to find a way to get it in. And they kind of cram it in where it might not fit, might not make sense in the ninth inning of a 1-1 game with a couple men on base to be talking about something that's got nothing to do with the game itself at that point. So uh, I, I really enjoy the preparation. I enjoy doing the homework. But I think the big part of it for anybody is I would remind you, you've got to know when to say when and, and when things fit, when they don't, and realize that if you can't get something in, there'll be other opportunities to use it down the road. Something you mentioned in there that I want to follow up on is using your network that you've developed. And obviously, as you said, you've been in the game long enough where you have a pretty extensive network. But when you're first starting off in whether it's professional broadcasting or any, any other um, journalism uh, field, how do you start developing that network? You know, it's just by being around and getting to know people. And when I was in AAA, coming right out of school, there would be scouts that would come out to the games. There'd be club officials from the Orioles who are our parent club, maybe from the parent club of the team we were playing, uh, other broadcasters, front office executives, players. You get to know people in AAA, and next thing you know, they're in the big leagues. Next thing you know, they get traded to a different organization. So all of a sudden, you don't know this guy just because he's with the Orioles. You now know this guy because he's with the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, and you stay around this game long enough, all of a sudden – people who you knew as players become coaches and managers and general managers. And it takes some time. Uh, but, you know, you start small and you'd be surprised as time goes on how quickly that network can grow. But it's all about relationships and getting to know people uh, and realizing that not everything is about what kind of information can I procure from this person right now, but uh, just a relationship and staying in touch. And, hey, how's your family doing? And, uh, you know, this is what's going on in my life right now. And you develop those relationships. And next thing you know, that scout becomes a farm director and that farm director becomes a general manager or that backup third baseman becomes a coach in the big leagues and then becomes a manager. And all of a sudden you wake up one day and you just got people all over the place. And it's a cool situation to be in because uh, you know that they're tremendous resources. And, you know, I can be a source of information for other people as well who want to know things about our ball club or players that I've seen recently, get my impressions on them. So uh, it's a real give and take. And you just start small. You start with the people who you're around, but you can't just lock yourself in the press box or in the broadcast booth. You got to get out and talk to people and develop those relationships. And as time goes on, they'll grow and grow and they'll become very beneficial for you. I want to ask a couple of more technical broadcasting questions. Um, you know, in baseball, I think compared to other sports, generally, you have more time to process when a big moment's about to occur. Not always, but I think more so than other sports. How do you approach those types of situations? Because I guess I'm thinking, like, if you're doing a basketball game, you know that maybe it's a tie game with 10 seconds left and something's going to happen. 
you don't know exactly how it's going to happen. It happens very quickly. You don't have time to think about it. Baseball, you have a little bit more time to think about it. So how do you approach those big type of situations? Probably by not thinking about them too much, I guess, is the best answer. And as the years have gone on, I think I've learned to kind of let the game come to me rather than aggressively attacking the game with your play-by-play. You just sit back and you can set the stage, but you wait for that big moment to happen. I've never been one to plan calls. You know, I recently, well, it was a couple of years ago now, but I called Ichiro's 3,000th hit. Uh, that wasn't a call that I planned in advance. I've had other players, uh, Alex Rodriguez, we had his 2,999th hit, had a couple of at-bats with A-Rod where he could have gotten his 3,000th hit, but that's not the sort of thing that I plan or milestone home runs. Uh, I don't think about that stuff in advance, but you just sit back and you paint the picture and you don't really – treat the moment any differently than any other moment because you still never know when it's going to happen. This might be the at-bat it happens. This might not be the at-bat it happens. Uh, But to me, it's just about being prepared. And in terms of technical play-by-play stuff, I think one of the most important things you can do is always be ready for something to happen. And by that, it sounds simple. But what I mean is not being behind when the pitch is thrown. You don't want to get caught up. You don't want the fans to hear the roar of the crowd and know something's going on, but you're finishing up a story that you started before the pitch was thrown. So I always try to be out of anything that I'm doing in time for the pitch to set the stage. And you're not going to hit that mark every pitch of every game, but particularly in a big spot, uh, you realize you've got to be ready for whatever to happen. So you get into a potential walk-off situation or, or second and third, two outs in the eighth inning in a big spot, I think that's when all the preparation goes out the window and all the anecdotal stuff kind of goes out the window. You just got to be locked in on the game and the moment at hand, and you want to be right on top of it when it happens. So uh, I think that probably answers your question. But the big thing is let the game come to you and don't think too much ahead. And uh, you ought to be okay if you stay on top of things. And one of the keys to success in broadcasting and anything honestly is just getting reps Uh, and obviously the current situation and hopefully this will change soon but the current situation has made it very challenging for younger broadcasters like myself to get those reps what tips do you have for people just in terms of staying sharp and finding ways to improve your skills during this layoff Eric, you're exactly right about getting reps. That's the first thing I tell people who are trying to get into the business is you've got to get reps. You've got to get out, do games. The more you do, the better you get. It's not anything you can learn in a classroom. You can pick things up by listening. And I always recommend people listen to broadcasters they like and respect and every broadcaster to pick up little things maybe you like, maybe you don't like. Uh, But getting reps is a critical thing. And I tell people, if that means going to a major league ballpark and sitting in the bleachers and calling the game into your iPhone, that's what you've got to do. If it means going to an American Legion game or a high school or college game and recording games into your phone, that's what you've got to do. Uh, Right now, uh, I would say, you know, it sounds silly to say, hey, when the MLB Network replays game six of the 86 World Series, turn the volume down and call it off the TV. But if that's all that you can do, and if you don't have a ton of experience and you need some experience, then maybe that's what you do. But more than anything, and what I do to try to stay sharp right now is I just try to keep the wheels turning in my head. I try to stay in that play-by-play mode. And one of the things I've been doing lately in anticipation of hopefully the season starting up before too long is I've gone back, and I don't normally do this very often, but I've been listening to old games of mine. 
that I've called just to get my brain working and the wheels turning again in that play-by-play mode. Uh, I did that prior to the start of spring training this year for the first time in a while, just to, again, get those muscles working that don't work a whole lot in the off season. So uh, I'd say go ahead, listen to play-by-play broadcasters, stuff on tape that you can hear. Uh, and if you're really just starting out and are desperate for those reps, then it means, you know, calling video games. I've heard some people talk about doing that. If it means calling games off the TV, classic games that are on the MLB network or ESPN, uh, Korean games, if you want to get up at 525 in the morning, whatever it may be, uh, you got to go ahead and do it because you're exactly right. You need those reps. And I feel terrible for the young broadcasters who would have gone to the Cape Cod League, for example, this summer or would have been in a summer college league somewhere and aren't getting those reps or for the broadcasters starting out in rookie ball or a ball who aren't going to get those reps this year in the minor leagues. Uh, it really is a setback as it is for young players trying to develop. It's a huge setback for young broadcasters because it really is one of those things that you've just got to do over and over and over to get better at. So whatever it takes to get those reps now, you got to do it. It's no stranger that, uh, or I guess you're no stranger to the fact that the, the Marlins haven't exactly been at the top of baseball standings uh, the last handful plus more, more years. I have noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you, when, when you're going through the grind of a 162 game season, how do you avoid falling into the trap of here we go again, another you know, blowout where I just got to find ways to fill time? That's a great question. Uh, the big thing is I try to, going into every single game, ask myself and then explain to the listener why this game tonight matters. What is it about this one game out of 162 that sets it apart from last night's game and tomorrow's game and every other game this season? And it could be a pitcher making his major league debut. It could be a chance to win three series out of four after a terrible last month. Whatever those couple of points may be, I try to focus in on some of those things. And in the case of the Marlins, look, here's the reality. This is a team in building mode that had a, a lot of big-name players uh, who have been productive elsewhere since they were traded away from Miami. In some cases, much more productive here than they uh, – much more productive elsewhere than they were here. But when, when that group was together, and I'm talking about Giancarlo Stanton, Christian Yelich, Marcelo Zuna, JT Real Muto, D. Gordon, Jose Fernandez before his death, when that group was together essentially for five years – and in the case of Stanton, he was the guy who was here for eight full seasons. They never had a winning record. So it wasn't like they broke up the 1927 Yankees when they decided they're going to try to build this team through scouting and player development. So what I've done is I've immersed myself in the process of what they're doing here. And I've gotten to know what's going on in the minor leagues very well. I've gotten to know the talent in the minor leagues very well. In our case, we follow that on just about a daily basis on the broadcast. Hey, look who's hot in double A at Jacksonville right now. Look who's tearing it up in single A and Jupiter. And you, you try to lay that storyline out for the fans. So the reality is the guys who are on the field for the Marlins tonight, conceivably, aren't the guys who are likely going to be the heart and soul of the ball club when the Marlins are really good again. And we hope that's going to be much sooner than later. So you got to start telling the story of those players who are coming through this system and what they're up to and making sure that by the time they get here, folks know a little bit about them, who they are, where they came from. And in the meantime, you hope you're getting people excited about the future. So you're right. It can be tough when you go 57 and 105 or whatever the heck we were last year. I think that was the final record. Uh, and 
it's no fun. But I think going into the year, you know what you're looking at, so you're realistic about it. And in many respects, I would argue that a team like the Phillies, who went into the last two seasons with sky-high expectations and really fell flat and finished under 500, right around 500 the last two years, that's a harder team to broadcast for me than the Marlins would have been the last couple of years. Because the Marlins, we, we know what we are going into the season. We understand we're in the early stages of building. Uh, when you have those sky-high expectations and you fall flat, I've been part of teams like that also. That's, to me, a lot tougher to do. So I try to understand the big picture, and I try to impart that to the listener on a nightly basis throughout the season. But at the same time, uh, you do look at individual games, performances, and, and you try to find the positives, and you try to tell that part of the story as well. It was someone who has spent pretty much all of your career working in radio um, and, has, and has underscored the uh, importance of honing your broadcasting skills through radio, even if you want to do television. How do you see radio broadcasts evolving in the future? Because, you know, they're, they're not the primary way that, that people consume games now. No question. The majority of people do watch on TV. Uh, and even people who listen on the radio now don't just uh, often get in their car and turn on 940 Winds, the Marlins flagship station, to listen to the game. They listen on their iPhone. They listen through SiriusXM. They listen through the MLB at Bat app. They listen through MLB.com. Uh, so ra radio has really changed. And, and people sometimes look at uh, teams' radio ratings on their flagship station and miss out on the fact that not many people listen to the flagship anymore. Technology has changed to a point where people listen to baseball much differently. It's a very interesting question. You've seen the Oakland Athletics in the last year or so go to an internet-only situation where they don't have a flagship station. Uh, I do think there will always be a role for radio and baseball. I think baseball is better suited to the radio than any other sport because of the description that's required, because of the time you have between pitches to tell stories and, and paint that picture. I think baseball on the radio is a ballet that when it's done really well can be very, very enjoyable. So I don't think baseball on the radio ever goes away, but I do think just like TV is evolving a little bit. I think you may be looking down the road at baseball play-by-play -play becoming a little less play-by-play -play if that makes sense. And not quite like a talk show going on with a game in the background, but more discussion, more give and take. And, oh, yeah, here's the 2-2 pitch. Uh, I think just as viewers and listeners' needs and interests have changed, you need to evolve with the times a little bit. So I think that the day of straight radio play-by-play -play may be coming to an end, and people are looking for more than just the facts. And uh, I think we need to be ready to adapt to that and at the same time understand the technological changes and the fact that people consume baseball on the radio differently than they ever have before. So I don't think baseball on the radio is going away by any stretch. I think it certainly fills a void for people. I know I hear from a lot of people that when a game is nationally televised, for example, they want to listen to the hometown radio broadcast instead of listening to national broadcasters who they feel don't know their team as well. And uh, there's always going to be a place for baseball on the radio. But the media in general is changing, and baseball on the radio is as well. What's something that you've learned throughout your career as a professional broadcaster that you wish you knew while you were, while you were still at Northwestern? A great question. Um, i got to think about that for a second. 
I think, and I may have answered this already in one of my earlier responses to you, Eric. Uh, I, I think as somebody who prides himself in being impeccably prepared for every broadcast night in and night out, it's realized that there's a time and a place for everything. And at the end of the day, people tune in for the game and the information and the insight is great to add to the experience. But the bottom line is people want to hear the game. And it's as simple as what's the score, what's the inning, who's at the plate, who's on the mound, who's on base, where's the defense set up. And you just need to stick with the basics most of the time. So that doesn't mean that uh, the other stuff doesn't matter. There's a place for it. But I think sometimes we can overthink things and complicate things a little more than they need to be complicated. So sticking to the basics is probably ultimately the key. And when young broadcasters send me tapes to listen to, or if I'm listening to somebody on the radio, that's probably the first thing I look for is, is I love information. I'm a source of information. I pride myself on being a source of information. I love energy. I love enthusiasm, but more than anything, is this broadcast telling me what I need to know about the game, the pure basics of everything? And I think sometimes, especially early on, maybe you lose sight of that. So that's probably the, the biggest thing I would stress. And one last question for you, Glenn. I appreciate you taking the time to chat. What does your gut tell you regarding uh, will baseball be played in 2020? I know the momentum has seemed to shift back toward yes the last couple of days as we record on uh, June 19th. But what what, are you, what does your gut tell you? They're going to have to play. There's just no way they cannot play. Everybody has to at some point come together and realize nobody wins if there's not a baseball season in 2020, particularly with the – NBA and the NHL getting set to come back and the NFL apparently going to be set to kick off when the time comes for them. Now, the only thing I would say, and as we record on June 19th, there's been some news breaking about an outbreak at the Philadelphia Phillies spring training complex in Clearwater where eight people have tested positive for COVID-19 in the last couple of days. If there were to be a medical situation that changes dramatically, that's first and foremost in everybody's mind. But when they feel as though they have a plan in place to play the games safely and to keep people as healthy as humanly possible, and unfortunately to do it in empty ballparks without fans, if you take the medical stuff out of the equation, if it's just a question of, hey, can we make a deal here, get everybody in the field, the answer has to be yes. And I do think there is going to be a season, and it's going to end up being between 60 and 70 games. And I know from a broadcast standpoint, we won't travel with the teams. We'll uh, be doing the home games from the ballpark. And when the team goes on the road, we'll go into Marlins Park and call the games off of some monitors there. So it's going to look different. It's going to sound different. It's going to be different for the players, for the owners, for the broadcasters, for the fans. Certainly won't be able to be in the ballpark, but there has to be a season. And if there's not, either something has gone horribly wrong medically or something has gone horribly wrong in some negotiations where this sport just can't afford for things to go horribly wrong. So they got to figure it out one way or another. That was my conversation with Miami Marlins radio play-by-play broadcaster, Glenn Geffner. Thanks so much to Glenn for taking some time to chat on the podcast. And hopefully he's right. And baseball will be played in 2020. As it stands right now, it looks like it will be. And hopefully he'll be back in the broadcast booth very soon. Be sure to check back next week for another episode of Interviewing the Interview. 
I'm Eric Winston-Lobel. Thanks for listening.